0: Hi there, my name is Corey Johnston. And I'm Michelle Maunder. And you are listening to Spirited Conversations Engaging and Elevating Paediatric Occupational Therapists, a joint collaboration between Seed Paediatric Services and Developmental FX. Each week you'll hear from myself and Michelle as we nerd out with Tracy Stackhouse. Just a note before we start, Spirited Conversations is for informational purposes only. We're not intending to be a substitute for professional medical advice or therapeutic intervention. We urge you to seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health professionals with any questions you have regarding specific medical conditions. With that, let's jump into today's episode.
1: Hello, welcome to episode six. Hello, Corey. Hello,
0: Michelle. Hi, Trace.
1: Great to see you. Hi, Tracy. Great to be with you guys. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) We get so excited. This is such a joy for us. It is. Uh, So, last episode, we uh, examined uh, sensory modulation and regulation, and we just uh, danced across both those concepts. So, today's really about. uh probably recapping sensory modulation and then we'll springboard forward from that but it was such a big topic we thought we would um
0: yeah break it up over to uh probably have more than two down the track for sure (laughs) i feel like we can have a whole month (laughs) dedicated to it
2: but um, yeah you know we could we could come back to it over and over from different perspectives you guys But what I was aware of after we had our last episode was that from an occupational therapy standpoint, we entered this space really around sensory modulation, just from a pure kind of sensory integrative framework. And then the way that this has unfolded and evolved, it connects into all of that regulatory circuitry. it i think it'd be really fun for us to think back to the sensory base of it mm. um and and dive into that a little bit more
0: yeah
1: i think that it's sounds probably, good yeah. we got so excited it's yeah. so intertwined and i think um i think we're feeling like in part that we maybe better understand the sensory modulation part which is why i'm so eager to get so, the connection to regulation but yeah let's let's go back
0: to sensory modulation yeah well i I'm curious about um how we how the mechanism of modulating sensation actually occurs um but I don't know, is that too deep a topic for today? <laughs> that's pretty full on,
2: um but I don't know what do you think tracy it's It's not too deep for us because we love deep we we're, we're <laughs> We're we're deep
0: seekers on I, some I level, should, aren't we? I should have worn my mm-hmm. vestibular labyrinth earrings.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, now, now you belong to a very special circle of people who have <laughs> the vestibular labyrinth earrings. But let me say that um so so the concept of sensory modulation you know, we talked a little bit last time about how Dr. Ayers talked about this harmony within the system. Mm. But harmony, even in like a vocal performance or an orchestra or places where we we think about harmony often in music, Mm. and that's the dialing up and the dialing down of the different tonal qualities. and, And it's the dialing up and the dialing down, right? So sensory modulation really refers to the neuronal capacity to um, up and down, turn up and turn down the, the mechanisms. And the sensory mechanisms are really around turning up the focal feature to what is salient and turning down the things that are competing with that that aren't assisting. So it's this simultaneous turning up and turning down and we use a lot of different words for that, right? So I think sometimes you hear the words like um, inhibition and facilitation. Are those words that that yeah, ring yeah, true? Yeah. That's yep. what that's
0: yep. what um, when I read the literature, I often see that those two mm-hmm. like um, yeah terms.
2: Yep. Yeah, and what I think is what starts to be interesting about that is that, especially the word inhibition. Inhibition happens in the cells. So it happens in the peripheral cells. It happens in the central nervous system cells. But, you know, inhibition is also something that we can see in behavior. Mm. So we jump from the focus at the cellular level all the way to the level of behavior. And so we can see, and, and a lot of times the regulation processes, we we see in children that they struggle with inhibition or inhibitory control, and sometimes that directly relates all the way back to what's happening at the cellular level in the sensory processing, where the child isn't able to inhibit. So a sound comes in, and instead of that sound whooshing in and whooshing out, the sound comes in and then it stays. It doesn't inhibit it, it does, and it stays too focal. Oh. Um, So it's kind of one of the places where there's both clarity, like we understand the idea of inhibition, but there's also some confusion because we're jumping between levels of analysis from what's happening in the sensory processing itself into what's happening in behavior. So that's where I think sometimes we get a little confused um, about all these complicated
0: concepts I'd set a thought so if the sounds coming into the cochlear labyrinth and moving up and activating those you know, the tympanic membrane moving little hair cells if you have if you don't have inhibition are you talking about at that moment there that those nerves are like the action potentials are going on for too long or how, how does that work
2: yeah, so that that can happen. That can happen, but that's not happening because of of what's happening in the periphery. It's actually what so sensory modulation summates in that whole regulatory circuit, all the way across all the systems from the brainstem. All the way up the hierarchy into the frontal cortex. And inhibition is actually kind of organized from the top down. Right. So what happens is that when you're trying to listen um, and you're trying to exquisitely tune in to something, the, that, that wanting to tune in, the desire to tune in, organizes from the top down the filtering the slowing down and the parsing out of what it is that you're trying to take in. And so the top-down starts to tell the peripheral system, do more of this or less of that. Hmm. And so even in sensory modulation, the modulation that's happening in in the auditory mechanism in this case isn't happening in isolation from what's happening across the rest of that whole circuitry. And that's why I think this is interesting because sensory modulation in and of itself never operates in a vacuum. It operates as a part of the rest of that circuit that's telling it, why are you trying to take in that sound? Why is that important to your nervous system? So the question of why ticks all the way back to... That safety issue that we were talking about, if the sound you're taking in is meaningful and interesting and relevant and holds lots of content and it's safe, it feels good to your system to take it in. So it feels good in terms of it's not too loud. It's not a pitch that is irritating to you. the, uh, The actual information is interesting and you want more of it. Then you're going to dial up, but you don't just dial up, you also dial down the stuff that's competing. So, sensory modulation is the harmony, it's the constant adjusting of the up and the down that brings into the system the just right information. And then it becomes discriminative information right away, so that the detail, the actual information you're processing, not the tonal quality, but the what is that music about? That's the sensory discrimination system. So they're always working in partnership. But the modulation circuitry is just the dialing up and the dialing down based on do I want that in my system? And if I want it, do I want it richly? Do I want it with nuance? Do I want it with color? Do I want it with the warmth or the or the joy or the the affective tone of the information. So if I want more of that, then I'm going to allow that to come in. If I want to protect myself from it, then I'm going to dampen it down and move away from it. And so that interacts with your state, because if you're just waking up from a sleepy nap, (laughs) your sound system isn't going to be ready to just listen to a lecture. If you're just waking up from a sleepy nap, your sound system is going to be in that sleepier state, and so it needs to have it modulates based on that state. If you've woken up and you have your coffee and you've gone for your run and you're ready to go, then your state is going to dial to that that level of alertness that allows you to take in a different quality. So in the morning. Music sounds differently comforting to your system than it does later in the day. How interesting.
1: That is fascinating. All right. So I have two things in my mind, Tracy. That's phenomenal. What about the nervous systems that don't change their state so readily so that um, I do, uh, you know, Change my state and I can feel exactly those examples that you mentioned um, really resonated. Um, and I go with the flow through the day, I guess. And um, what about nervous systems that perhaps children with autism um, or trauma where their state is perhaps, well, higher or perhaps lower? So does that, and so they're the ones that we see coming in that have a difficult time bringing in the second concept of attention, that their state is heightened so they're less able, even if they're really interested, to attend to something, even if it's compelling, um, and they kept keep getting pulled off by the car going past or the, um, you know, the light that's bright or uh, the phone ringing outside. Um, so it, it's
2: the state that's first. Is that right? That's right. That's exactly right. And what's so um, exactly spot on with your description, Michelle, is that for kids where this these mechanisms don't work well for them, sen- sensory modulation is full fo- is in the foreground instead mm. of in the background. Yes. So yeah. what sensory modulation should do for you is help you orient. And organize in space and time. And then now you just know I'm in a room that's near the road. And so when cars go by, I don't need to worry about that. But that's because we can take sensation and make meaning out of it. For our kids that struggle, regardless of their cognitive and language levels, for when kids struggle with sensory processing, that kind of information making is all sticky. And, and so they know that the car might pass, but, but then the car is going to pass and the loudness of the car or the, the tenor of that car sound is something that they have to orient to because the not orient mechanism, the inhibition mechanism doesn't work well for them. So it doesn't learn that, okay, I know the car, so now I can ignore it. That ignore or habituation mechanism is often really altered for these kids. It doesn't exercise well. So if we, if we think about a sensory modulation circuit in a metaphor like a muscle, if you lift you know, some weights and you can now pick up your can of heavy beans or something without any effort, because you've exercised that muscle and it's and it's going to be there to serve you. And then the next time you go to do it tomorrow, it's easy because you've already exercised that muscle. But when you have sensory modulation problems, it's like the exercise doesn't stick. And so that's the habituation problem. So I hear the car go by and I overorient to it. Maybe mm-hmm. I startle maybe I over-respond to it, or maybe I defensively respond to it. Mm. And then that neuronal circuit doesn't learn from that experience when you have a sensory modulation problem. So the next time the car goes by, it's like it happened just like Mm. the first time. And then it happens again, and it happens just like the first time. And so over-responding tells you that the circuit isn't up and down regulating, up and down um, facilitating and inhibiting in a way that it's learning how to habituate and how to organize the response to the sensation adaptively so that the next time it's more adaptive. And that's exactly why this is a sensory integrative problem because it doesn't organize that adaptive response.
0: So I have a question I was thinking about when you were talking about um, inhibiting or facilitating, and I I was just picturing a single nerve cell and I was imagining, you know how there's so many different nerve cells sort of connected to the one cell, right? They're also intertwined or integrated usually. Um, I'm imagining that some of those cells that are connected to that one cell have the job of making it be quiet and some of those cells have the job of making it activate, And I'm just wondering if you have a sensory modulation – and maybe we don't know the answer to this – but if you have a sensory modulation difficulty or that's not happening, so you're not habituating and you're not learning, is it because that the cells that say, be quiet, or release the neuromodulators that say, shh, be quiet – aren't there? Or is it the actual neuromodulators aren't being released? Or like, do we actually know the mechanism? Or where is the inhibition? Where should inhibition come from? Where does it drive from?
2: Yeah, I, I love the question. And it's really a hard one to answer, partly because the, it, it sits in the context of state again. And there's, right. um, so this gets to be, yeah, I, I'm trying <laughs> to decide if in a podcast forum, this is a good thing to go to because <laughs> there's this, there are these mechanisms whereby na- neighbor, the neighborhood of neurons mm-hmm. that are processing sound in this case, because we're thinking about sound right yeah. now. Yeah. So the neighborhood of neurons that are processing that, um, there are, there are, there are kind of forces that say, okay, neighborhood, you guys are going to work together cooperatively to respond, and these are the partners that are going to help you to do that. And so it's this building of the neighborhood Through Hebbian circuitry It gets really complicated So see I'm going to say words and then you're going to say But what does that mean Um, And so it's this is why It gets a little tricky for me to try to Simplify it and you know what It's okay for us to stumble through this Because really This is the reality of why this Nervous system circuitry is so Complicated but what happens Basically is If the state and the Context around that neighborhood is telling the system that those that modulation circuitry in the cell you should be upregulating right now because this person this being this human that's trying to attend is trying to attend so help to attend so if the rest of the state and the circuitry is telling it that little neuron uh, help this system to attend then it'll be more likely to do so What happens for our kids with neurodevelopmental problems is it's the whole rest of the circuitry that's also out of balance. So it isn't getting enough information to know why it should modulate. And Mm. so it really is kind of related to what we talked about in the last episode, that all of those other regulatory functions are actually telling the sensory modulation system what to do. Mm. And the sensory modulation system is telling the rest of the regulation system what to do. So it's a bi-directional thing. So so
1: if you have multiple senses and that are really um, primary, so touch, auditory, and vestibular systems, if all the neighbourhoods are saying, be on alert, you know, um, because I'm not quite sure I'm safe here. Then you've got multiple neighbourhoods. I'm going to go with that analogy. Yeah, that was cool. Getting ready for something to come that might, you know, upset the apple cart and yeah, and well,
0: disturb it. So you've got that, I guess, that heightened state. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say the state because you said if you're feeling unsafe, you've got the state shift. Yes, that then puts the, all the neighborhood security guards on alert. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like, whoa, everybody, like, let's watch out for any incoming input here because maybe there's going to be somebody robbing the houses around here, or <laughs> you know. So I guess as soon as the state goes up and the um, alert goes out to the neighborhoods, then everyone's more um, on edge about what's coming and what's next, and maybe can't. Um, prioritize one thing over another just paying attention to everything whereas if you know the message goes out that's like yep yeah, no no threat Chill. detected to everybody's these. good then everyone can decide oh well maybe i'll go out and play in the park today or i don't know if that analogy is working but, yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah that's exactly right so neurons that fire together wire together and what happens in our um kiddos that are struggling is that You know, today it fired in this pattern and tomorrow it fires in that pattern. And then in the next moment, it fires in a different pattern. And so you end up not being able to strengthen the circuitry because you don't have consistency. Or you have consistency around the wrong function. Uh, So you have consistency around protection. Or you have consistency around, I'm so excited about every little thing that happens to come along. (laughs) Um, Corey? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: so we love it Tracy
2: (laughs) yeah yeah and so so it's this sort of neighborhood of neurons that need to fire together consistently in the same state over and over so one of the things we do in treatment is we create consistent state for consistent responding so the nervous system starts to say oh when this happens I'm safe and I should respond this way. Oh, when this happens, I'm safe and I should respond this way. And we start to be able to get a repeated cycle that then the nervous system finally locks into. And once that happens, you start to get a general state of modulation that supports regulation.
1: So Tracy, I um, spoke last episode how I try and really practically put that information together down where I um, literally draw out that uh, state of arousal or state of regulation and um, the window of tolerance, how wide or narrower that is, um, the things that are interrupting that state, uh, the things that then support that state how quickly they habituate and under what conditions they habituate more quickly, I guess, um, and, and where they don't actually habituate. And that it takes a lot of effort and really refined thinking and support to try and have them return to that uh, optimum state of regulation. Uh, so I start to draw that. And I guess what I'm curious to think about now is some strategies about How do we build that tolerance? How do we build uh, habituation? Because I guess what I'm hoping for in the real life when they're back at the kiddos, back at school or back at home, where they don't have. ideally a long amount of time and all the equipment that we have and really um, sophisticated skills, I guess, ideally, um, to support these kiddos that we have the luxury of doing in the clinic when we're working with the um, child one-on-one. So how do we start to think about regulation? Like how do we um, have some frame of reference that guides the next steps for us?
2: Yeah. that So, so to get to that level of practicality, I do think, you know, the handout that we've kind of shared with you is a good foundational start. So, the first thing that you do is you do that theorizing and and you're going to draw your picture of what you think you're working on. And if you can translate that for the family or for the school, it also gives them something tangible to hang on to. So, mm-hmm. If a child isn't habituating, every time the car goes by, what's that, what's that, what's that? Mm -hmm. You could draw that out for them. So car driving by is on the bottom axis and car, you know, so maybe you put 15 cars drive by. (laughs) And every time you draw this large response to that, that doesn't recover back down. And so from being able to depict that, and then you say to the teacher or to the parent, and you wonder with them, how do you help the child settle away from that? Instead of just saying, We're not listening to cars or we're paying attention over here, realizing that their nervous system has now gotten a full charge of carness driving by. So how do we help the their little nervous system to say, oh. I'm not interested in the car, I'm interested in this book that we're looking at. How do Mm -hmm. we make the book as relevant and salient as the car? Mm -hmm. So you start to have that discussion with them and I don't think you can know how to coach them if you don't have a working theory of what is the modulation problem. So I think drawing it creates that clarity and it also does bridge us from what's happening in the brain to what's happening Mm. in behavior. So we're making a hypothesis and sometimes we're wrong, but (laughs) mostly we're pretty right. Um, So you make the hypothesis. So, you know what it is that you're trying to grab onto and what it is you're trying to affect. What change Mm. does the nervous system need to exercise in the lived experiences of the child to start to give it the adaptability that you want um, to, to affect. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's fascinating. It's awesome. I was thinking about, because I guess in drawing the chart, you're, as you see the child's nervous system respond to certain inputs and you see the intensity of the response, I guess the chart will directly reflect how intense the response is and then how well the nervous system can actually inhibit the response or whether it can or can't. And then I guess that would give you a sense of what you do in session to help that recovery. Mm. If, if that recovery is not happening, then you go into session and you go, okay, this is what I do to get the recovery to happen. And then maybe you can highlight that for the parent. And I I, I guess Michelle, I I know you, you know this really in and out in, in that some kids you can go in and you can um, actively kind of engage with them to to pull them back, to, to get them back into a more organised state, right? So you're, you kind of co-regulate them. We haven't talked about that. But you go in and you lower your body and you become soft or you, you know, you represent safety. So mm-hmm. the relationship then represents safety and brings them back to an organised state, whereas other kids – cannot have a bar of you like cannot you can't even look at them they are like get the heck away from me (laughs) i cannot do relationship right now um and i guess that might that piece helps you then know where do i go for this child Mm. in the in in the recovery inhibition habituate um piece and so maybe that probably leads us right to the middle um, column of the handout, but, um, how, I mean, I, I don't know all of these R words, Tracy, and I don't know all the theories that they come from, but I'm sure they come from many, many different people in the world of, in this space. But I guess I just talked about, um, relating, but when you can't relate, like how, um, I I do other things when I can't relate, like when I can't use that option of getting in with a child, but yeah, I don't know what what about some of the other R's, or should we go just go through some of those things together?
2: Yeah. So it, what we put in them in that middle column is just a, a suggestion of some of the key concepts that are out there. But you did such a beautiful job, Corey, of kind of dancing through them, and you you mentioned some of the key R's. So the first one you mentioned was recover, right? So if you see a child whose nervous system is over responding or defensively responding or their state is mismatched in an upward direction to where they optimally function, then you might be working on a little bit of down regulation. For some kids, recovery is recovering upwards, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things we need is, again, that really clear model, what are, where are we headed and what what's going to organize or regulate their little nervous system. So we think about regulation models and out in the broader world, there are a lot of different people who theorize about this. I think, you know, Bruce Perry has this model that is very well described um, in his neurosequential model and his is a sequential model. So he suggests that you sequentially regulate before you relate and then you move into reasoning and rationality almost every single regulation model will have reasoning and, and words and rationing rationale at the end. So the the, cortex is lost. Yeah. And that Mm. follows that triune brain model, Mm -hmm. right? That you can't even access reason until you're more regulated. Mm -hmm. And so on some level, we know the, the, you know, we can go back to Dan Siegel's flip your lid model. That's a, you know, really popular construction. You can watch YouTube videos about it and and know that if a child is dysregulated, they flip their lid and they're really operating in this more primitive way. But for some kids to help them to put their lid back down, they can't access relationship to do that. Mm. So relate may not be the first place to start. For other, but it's never in the absence of relationship. Mm. You have to really soften the safety and access for them, and kind of move yourself into a space that's allowing them to access safety and regulation and comfort. Um, or, you know, if the child accesses safety and from activity, then you have to go there with them. So it's really about attuning to what they need. And so, you know, Deb Dana has a set of R models. Um, Dan Hughes is a person who I respect greatly and worked a lot with Jean Coomer, who was a, a close mentor of mine. And they created a particular model for children with more trauma-based issues um, that it doesn't even have the R in it, but it's called the safe place model.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, you have to really pick it. You have to pick a model and you have to pick it based on what does this child's nervous system need. And, and that's, that, that takes a lot of knowing. So I think the point in, in our discussion today is really to point people to that middle column to say, be on purpose about this, you guys. Yes. Decide, yep. you know, what works for this child to regulate them? What works in terms of relationship for them? And how are you going to proceed through that? And to be consistent, because remember, we're trying to exercise a neural circuit, and we have to do that with consistency. Mm. So we have to describe it to the teachers and to the parents and to the brothers and sisters and to the nanny and to the dog sometimes (laughs) so that, you know, we kind of get it right so that the child starts to come into regulation over and over and over again through relationship and which one of those is more focal is going to be a nuanced clinical decision mm. so that's okay be patient in learning about that but it, but be on purpose about it mm. yeah gosh. i um
1: had the pleasure of working with some kiddos that taught me so much because relationship and i think if you're with kids and you're an OT, um, and you're a people person, that is probably our intuitive go-to. And then I think when I learned lots more about, um, sensation that we build rhythm in and sound and, um, so they were my go-tos. I started working with some kids that that wasn't right. And even me saying hello as they entered a room or really facing them with this big happy smile. Was too much, and so that forced me to rethink what what how, what am I queuing here? Because I felt I was queuing um, a, a approach and safety, and even when I was toning me down and I'd avert my eyes and not even say hello and just do a little hey after they were in the room for five minutes, you know, really sideways. I just had to go to these other theories that. You mentioned Tracy to get some more because that didn't fit for me. I felt like, oh, how can you not say hello? Or, you know, or how can you? I felt in dampening me down and not using relationship um, that I wasn't using relationship, where in fact I just needed to put all those dampen me, dampen that down and wait till they showed me those cues of approach and safety to then signal that they were ready for me in a much more subtle way than I'd got away with before. Um, so I've loved probably diving in and reading lots about this, but I guess after coming at it for a little while, learning through these kiddos, is that I now put all that down and I feel okay that I don't go in with relationship first at times, that I don't even go in with... Um, rhythm and um, sensation. I don't know what else I do. (laughs) But um, yeah, it just has allowed me a freedom now to be like, you know what, you are just going to watch what happens here and see what signalled safety and approach for them and and hang on to that as subtle and nuanced and little as that was compared to some of the kids where I've queued hello and safety in bigger ways. um, Yeah, so that That took me into that world and I'm so glad I've been there but now I can let it all go and just work really, I don't know, intuitively as you say and use um, not a model in a really strict sense.
0: That's probably just because it's integrated a little bit more for you, Michelle. Mm. I I was just thinking when you were talking it made me think of um, I guess the time it's taken for me to even tune in to the – cue of state change and just dis- like um dysregulation in terms of oh uh, you've shifted I'm actually now I'm activated now I'm actually I'm not perceiving safety but like I you know I sometimes especially early on would miss that until it was quite big <laughs> like you know it had to be like that child is either like now running away, or like you, know, yeah, the cues had to be quite big for me to pick up on them earlier on, mm. and so now I'm like, I guess I can pick up on so many more refined cues of potential shift into, oh, I don't know if I feel safe, just like a gazer version rather than a whole body running away, <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm. or just even, um, I like pupil dilation or um, a slight little um, freeze in the body or a you know there's just just a look of a look of overwhelm for a second and then I'm able to catch them so much quicker so it's just taken me so long to do that and I, I'm the same as you Michelle in that it's as the other thing that's been happening along the same lines is figuring out how to be masterfully in control of myself Mm. (laughs) because it's so hard sometimes to not like if a child and you know my natural reaction if a child does something they haven't done before and it's so exciting. You just, you just, my natural is to go, yes, like, you know, that's so exciting. And so even now I'm tempering down my reaction because I would overwhelm your ears, but (laughs) you know, like you feel it in your body and you want to like show them that, but you, you then have to stop some of those innate things that you want to do. So you don't flood the child and then, you know, disrupt the whole process of what you've just got. So, I, for me, that's mm. exactly the same as you, Michelle, is the kids have taught me how to masterfully be in control of myself in mm. sessions because there is some innateness to the way that each of us want to come about it. Mm. And so that has been tricky because you might innately want to go one way but the child in front of you needs something different. Yes. So that's been a cool thing too and I'll, I'll continue. Kids, each child will continue to show me that, I'm mm. sure. Um, but oh. I, I don't know, Tracy. Oh, I can see you holding your hand. To your <laughs> it's so cute. Um, She's queuing safety. Aww. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But I is am, am I talking about recognize there? What am I talking about when I'm those? Is that what that recognize is? Is that just noticing the state, the shift, or what? Yes, is that?
2: absolutely, absolutely. For yourself as the co-regulator. And in embodying that in a co-occupant kind of way with the child and then helping them to eventually start to know, to recognize what they need. And that's Mm. such a beautiful gift. So, you know, before we um, talk about how some structure around how we might start to help our intuition grow, Listening to the two of you, I really have been just kind of putting my my hand on my heart to take in the beauty of your clinical work because it's so beautifully expressed. And what it made me really come to in this moment, you guys, is that we use the term regulation and dysregulation almost as if it's two different, like they're either or. Mm. but really, we should shift it and say that we're continually always regulating. And we're continually always relating. Mm -hmm. And when a child is starting to struggle a little bit, it doesn't mean they're getting dysregulated. It means they're working harder to regulate. So it's always regulating. And even their their so-called dysregulation is just showing us how hard they're working to find that homeostasis and harmony and possibility of what it means to be a human, right? So it's deep stuff we're talking about. And you're so gorgeous in the way you do your work. And I, I'm moved by it. So thanks for sharing.
1: Oh, Tracy, that's so lovely of you to say that. <laughs> we do certainly work at it. But um, yeah, it's just, I guess, our keenness and eagerness to try and support the kiddo in front of us, particularly when they're having a tricky time and that we're not adding to their, um, the stress, I guess, and that we're not adding to people being a source of stress for them. So that's what's been really Mm. drives us all to do what we do, um, so when I think about the last of the R's uh, Trace, I was interested in the restory story part of it. I don't know lots about that one. I guess if I'm thinking about it, what I try and do in the clinic with kiddos pretty early on if I know that they've got challenges with uh, state is set up some places of safety. And this came from you, I think, this idea of having – um a nest or a base or a place where they can go when they're feeling um, like they need some time to uh, settle themselves and come back. So they might have a little toy in there. There might be an oral motor chewy or whatever, but it's a contained space if that works for them. So when they, um, I really cue, and this again was from you, is let me know when you're ready. And so they might come back to me and so I help that them approach me and when they do I, I guess I'm wondering is ReStory story where I might say oh wow i wonder if that noise was too loud for you did that look like it might have given you a fright did that make your body run over there and then um when you felt calmer, that you were able to, you know, have a little chew on your chewy or take some breaths and then then you came back to play because you're ready now or something like that. <laughs> um, is that what ReStory is? We're trying to make sense of what just happened for them? Absolutely. And
2: I, yes, that's exactly what it is. And it's it can be a little um, profound because you're doing it both for the child So you're restoring their lived experience in that moment, but you could also be restoring for them on a bigger level. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with you that you over, your nervous system does this to you. It over responds and here's how you feel safe and how smart are you to Mm. take care of yourself? How beautiful is it that you, you know how to take care of yourself? So sometimes we're restoring something that other people have coded for the child is maladaptive or naughty or annoying or bothersome and we're helping them to say you're understood and here's how you're understood and here's how we see help you see the world sometimes we have to restory for ourselves because mm. the the child pushes our buttons mm. and we have to say oh what's that about yeah. um Sometimes we're helping the parent or the teacher to restory that this child isn't being naughty, but they're really working hard to cope. Um, and then sometimes we have to restory to help a child find grit and to find their dig in and to find their power. So there's all kinds of, of beauty in that restory. It's a real part of the nuance of the work we're doing. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. gee that's powerful too i actually got goosebumps when you said that because this is where you change that script of oh they're just tension seeking or they're just trying to get out of maths or whatever the story is somebody's understanding from it you're allowing um another story i guess that's um ideally more uh, a true story i guess of what's happening but you're doing that for the person. I think um, saying, oh, your body took over is uh, is some phrase that I like to use with kiddos, like, oh, my gosh, your body took over and you ran over there. It ran you over there. Just to make it that the body did that, you are still gorgeous and you still wanted to play and be, but your body responded this way.
0: And I guess the highlighting of, wow, how smart is yeah. your body? Yeah. in knowing that that was too much. Yeah. That was too much and your body just took over and it needed to go away. I'm really glad you're back. Are you ready yeah. to play? Like, yeah. is that is that how restoring works, Trace?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Absolutely. It's got yeah.
0: such a
1: compassionate kindness underpinning to it. Like, it just allows it, oh, wow, that old body did that to me again. Like, it's just another way that they can befriend, I guess, um, and think nicely about what's happening yeah. to them, yeah. kind of automatically, yeah.
0: and know that, that that the the body has an inherent knowing of what I need. Yeah, like like not just my body took over, but oh, like I actually needed I needed to do that for myself. Yeah. So that's cool.
1: I guess what we need to do though is make sure that it isn't just a long, um, inefficient time yes. out. Yeah, uh, you give I them a different adaptive you, strategy. Yeah, right? and I guess yeah. we can slide into that now, yeah. Tracy, which so the last column on that um uh, image in the show notes is the step SI. So that when we're, um, that we're setting up so they're not just marking time, that they're not just going um in a state where they might have fleed and be really activated. So they're not just randomly running around, you know, the playground or, you know, hanging out in their bedroom for minutes, hours at a time that we're really efficiently cueing them into the, I wonder if these are the things that help your body. Um, and so that we can, uh, support families and teachers. To do that co-regulation piece. Um, So, did you want to talk about the STEP SI since you made it, Tracy?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, what I love about the STEP SI. So, Julie Wilbarger and Sharon Chanel and I put this together back in you know the middle nineteen nineties. And STEP SI is a mnemonic that we analyzed. Lots of hundreds of hours of videotape of watching master clinicians treat, and we categorized what they were doing and and came up with that these are the basic categories that clinicians use in um, a treatment session, but may also then use in parent coaching, in setting up home programs, in setting up school supports. So, you go through and you you really say, okay, here's the theory I have of this child, column on the left, and I'm going to go through and say, what are the sensory motor supports, the task supports, environmental supports, predictability, self-regulation, and interactional or relationship-based supports? And so, you can really nut out, as you all would say, um, the 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 really elements that are going to work. And for some children, we actually use all of them. And for others, we really focus in on a few elements. And what we want to do is tie it to how are we trying to help this kid in their active regulating process to enrich that so that the nervous system is getting everything that it needs to make sense of the world and to organize the adaptive response. So the sensory system we're going to support in a particular way that's going to be toward the direction of what is missing in the system. And then we're going to pick each of those elements. So when we do the trainings on the step SI, we really go through in a lot of detail S T E P S I and try to sort, you know, pretty carefully and thoroughly. But what I love about it is that it is a mnemonic. And so you can be in a situation, you know, observing a child, and maybe they've run across the room and they're scattered and and doing their thing. And if you're a little stuck, and and it's okay to admit that sometimes we get a little stumped by what's happening, um, you can inform your intuition by saying, okay, here's what's happening in S-T-E-P-S-I. We've added that extra P now of playfulness. Um, because we know it's just so critical. Um, but you can go through S-T-E-P-P-S-I and say to yourself, what, what what's missing? What am I doing in each one? And you can start to fine tune it. And just like you're, you know, tuning the strings of the guitar, you're, you're tuning the S-T-E-P-S-I, what else can I do here? to enhance the situation so that the child can come into regulation and use that regulation re- regulated state adaptively to play with you, to engage with the world, to master something, to find a new level of capacity in themselves, and to find that mastery, gorgeous drive that just pulls it all together. So that's what we're going for. And I think it's a really beautiful tool. It's been amazing to watch people take off with it and use it and I know you guys use it um uh in that way mm-hmm.
0: well I think you just described that Michelle before in that situation where we, you were talking about having that space for the child like you're literally using the environment oh, and the predict- like you know you there's so many pieces to that one example <laughs> because there's the amount of sensation that you're um, reducing down like you're reducing sensation and the demand of the systems to you know actually interpret the senses because they're coming down to a more confined space it might be is it usually covered it depends on the child I guess depends on the child but I guess what I look for
1: is the elements of a more contained space um Uh, So I consider that the environmental. So bring the space down and so sometimes that will have a deep pressure quality to it. So it might be underneath the mats or um, in tie tubes where they squeeze on in there. So I definitely know that deep pressure is an inhibitor. Um, yes, sometimes if kids are okay in their vestibular system so that when it's dark, they're not threatened or there's no trauma around darkness, then, um, I will have a roof on it or, and, and initially I'm making this space one, yeah, with the child. So when they're in a regulated space, we make a fort or a nest or a cubby house or whatever they want to call it, but that will be something that we will do together and they choose whether to repeat that or not. And then in my, in, in me offering that to them and seeing if it serves them a purpose for them, they'll repeat that. And, you know, Hey mom, can we make a nest at home and whatever it is. So that's my cue is, with following the child's lead, does that help them? Did that help them? And if it does, they repeat it. And it doesn't matter if it's built or not built each session; they'll cue into all that environment. Serves me, yeah. yeah.
0: But I mean, even in the environment piece, there's so many other, like the predictability of yes. having that to go to, or the, um, the sensations that that space offers them, yep. or you know, there's like so many aspects to that, and it
1: turns, um. I'm going to use uh, dysfunctional, but it turns a mobilised flea response or, oh man, this is too much and I need to get out of here, into more adaptive. And it cues in, and I guess in time, I'm like, oh, you're not ready. Tell me when you're ready. um, So that they know what's happening to them. And it's not just them running around the room or without me, that it is a oh yeah, you're doing that when you're dysregulated. So even that feels purposeful. Yeah. And sometimes they do it just to recover between activities where I wouldn't have thought, I guess they're moving to a little um discomfort, little dysregulation. I don't think it's necessarily, I don't necessarily spot it as a big dysregulation, but it's just a gap in between. I need a pause, Michelle, you know, that I wouldn't have picked, um, even if I'm looking for those nuanced signs. So it, Gives them a legit breather and in a productive, self-led, self-directed way. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I guess there's other ways in sessions that we might use these um, proactively as well, um, because you know to set a child up. If you if you're trying to maintain them in their optimal, and you know that these things work, then you can sometimes you'll you know you do it. You proactively set them oh, up. Set with, the room up absolutely. Yeah, or even just. Um, you know that rhythm organises them so you're going to straight away pop certain either quick shift on or, you know, you might not be trained in quick shifts but you might use a certain music or you might start with a rhythmical game or you might start with something that's not as, you know, you're going to start with something that's not a biggest challenge or you want to sort of set it up so that you can maintain that state and perceive safety as then you move into something that might be more challenging where they then have to, hold it and stay adaptive through that, through that challenge, I guess. And so I don't know, there's just so many ways that we could talk about all of these things. So we we should definitely come back. We'll definitely come back to the, this piece of it because there's lots of detail, but um, I don't know, because we're talking about modulation. Maybe I'll talk about sensations, but Michelle sort of alluded to deep pressure and that being as a mostly ninety ninety nine 99% of the time or most of the time being a rule of thumb of regulating and organizing and inhibitory so dampening or organizing for the nervous system um so so much so I think I have started putting in uh or or seeing what kids do and seeing how I can work in more proprioceptive quality to them to the what they're doing because often they're moving through space. It's not very organized. And so they might be seeking out movement in a certain way. And I'm just trying to see if I can organize that with a little more proprioceptive input, or, um, I guess a change in head position so that they are not just purely moving through space and upright, but then they have to actually work against gravity or so. And it's hard to fine line that between what's motivating and playful, the P, (laughs) um, and, I guess what's too hard because you, you're trying to organise the sensations to be able to stay within the state and then be more adaptive in some sort of task. So, yeah, Michelle, what do you I, – I mean, what, I often use music too, but what do you think about when you think about keeping kids in that through a sensation-based, modulation-based perspective?
1: Yeah, I guess I really am looking at what do they modulate well? Because it's not where, not all the senses have challenges with sensory modulation and that sometimes some of the senses are modulated, um, more strongly than others. And so I really am those up before I provide a, something, I, I just tend to bump into the auditory and tactile, um, defensiveness profile more and so I'll avoid those and, and so I might use um, intense vestibular input, whatever that is for each child, whether that's rotary, whether that's an inversion, um, as a setup, and then start to interdisperse disperse uh, the sensory element that they're having more challenge um, uh perceiving and modulating well. So I kind of come at the trickier part or, or the thing that's more difficult after I've really got them set up um, from a sensation perspective, from a relationship perspective. Mm. Um, and then that's when, when I see that, that's when I give that um Challenge or the or start to address a piece
0: that isn't modulating well, and you always embed that in the task. So it's yeah. it's like you don't just start touching them and like poking them, or like, you know, <laughs> like you, you're not just going to be like, Oh, yeah, now I'm just going to play around sound randomly. <laughs> like, um, you know, it's within the activity. And if, if I make myself a bit louder, can you still stay? And, um, or it, you know, because if that's disrupting you every single time a kid runs up to you and you now can you can't play with any of the children, then, you know, you're going to start to see if you can organize them and then create the challenge around the actual thing that's interrupting their life and their participation.
2: That's, that's right. That's right. So the clinical reasoning that you're demonstrating is, again, just so heartwarming (laughs) to me, because you're really clinically reasoning, and you're demonstrating that. And, you know, for every single child, every single little nervous system, it's going to be a different formula. It's going to be a different profile. And so what the StepSI allows you to do is to sort that and to create a clear plan, analyze what you're doing and think it through and then um, take the data, basically, what's happening here and be able to to, to start to establish oh, here's what happens when we bump edges and here's how we organize that. And here's what's organizing to the nervous system. Here's what's disorganizing to the nervous system. And how are we going to start to broaden the window of tolerance so that it handles normal, typical life experience. And that's what we're going for. Right. So I think it's a really great tool and you both just really demonstrated the utility of it and how it deepens your work. So Wow, yay, go us. (laughs) I don't know how you
1: make sense of the complexity of it without the two models, well, there's multiple models, but all of the things that we've discussed over the last episode and this episode, the sensory modulation, the state, um, the regulation elements. Um, Stuart Shanker, I'm not sure we've mentioned him, but he goes right into in great more detail Um, some of the other areas that are dysregulated. So he breaks down biology, for example. Um, So that has been a useful tool. And then it's like, what am I going to do with all that information and how do we resolve this and how do we make sense of this for the child and others around it? So this is it just makes my heart sing that Mm. we can do this. And this is life-changing for people, sometimes just taking them through this process and really being able to make sense of all these what seem to some people um, really disconnected and disjointed um, pieces of information or behaviours that the kids show Somewhat randomly, they do this sometimes, but not all the time. They do this at church, but not at school. They do this at grandma's, but not at mum's. Like, I think this all this information allows that to pull the pieces together in a way that creates a framework for them to understand oh, there's some connection across all these seemingly random instances. So, I'm so grateful that I've still getting my head around it, but this has been how I um, really informs how I do my work. Yeah, that's my biggest takeaway,
0: Corey. Yeah, I think today my key takeaway is just that it kind of dawned on me that nobody else in our professional sphere or as occupational therapists, we are the ones looking at sensory modulation and we're the ones that are going to bring this to the table. So, it's so important in my mind that we get our heads around this concept and that we really work at understanding this, this and how this can then cascade into the rest of their lives um, and, and do the work because I don't think nobody else is doing the work around this specific piece. So my key takeaway is just go and dive into this and love it and get your head around it because no one else is going to do it.
2: I just really want to build and reinforce what you're saying, Corey, that we have to do this work and we have the tools. So you, you have this, the step aside tool is really gorgeous to really support this and it's full on uh, the direction to go forward. And it, it supports the child in the treatment session. It supports you in coaching parents. It supports you in coaching educators and it just, it's solidly the way to go forward. So what a joy to get to share it in this forum. And hopefully it is something that will be useful for, for folks um, as they try to jump into it. Oh,
1: thanks, Trace, so much. And I really want to um, thank you because you've done a lot of work around this area, specifically with the STEP SI. And also I know the spirit um, is a frame that really encompasses um, and allows us to think about sensory modulation as well. So thanks, Tracy for all your work for our OT profession in this area. Great, great session. See you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Seed Pediatric Services and Developmental FX, produced by Little Image Co. For more information, please go to our show notes on our website, spiritedconversationspodcast.com, or catch us at our Seed and Developmental FX Facebook or Insta pages. So grateful to have you with us today for this episode. Take care, and we'll see you next time.